What's up, everybody? My name is Dimitri Kofinas, and you're listening to Hidden Forces, a podcast that inspires investors, entrepreneurs, and everyday citizens to challenge consensus narratives and to learn how to think critically about the systems of power shaping our world. I had a recording scheduled this past week that I was really looking forward to doing, but it had to be rescheduled last minute by my guests. So depending on when that happens, I might end up releasing it over the holidays, which hadn't been my intention. I would wanted to actually take a few weeks off between today and the new year and release the interview you're about to hear now, then, and maybe do an AMA or some type of monologue with my thoughts after the new year. In any case, what you're about to hear today was an appearance that I recently made on the Mining Stock Daily podcast, which focuses on the junior mining and mineral exploration sector. I know, I know, you didn't know that I was a mining expert. Neither did I, and actually I'm not. But Trevor Hall, the host of the podcast, does occasionally bring on guests for long-form conversations like the kind that I do on Hidden Forces. And so this turned out to be, I think, uniquely good, not only because I had a chance to think publicly and assimilate publicly some of the ideas that I continue to work through in private about where we are in society, the situation with markets, how I approach investing, etc., but also because Trevor is a very thoughtful interviewer and brought a perspective that I think really added a lot of value to the conversation. You can find more information about Trevor's podcast at miningstockdaily.com, where you can also hear our entire original conversation, including the first 25 minutes that are not included in the audio that you're about to hear today and which covered my bio and my time working in media. As always, you can learn more about Hidden Forces, listen to previous episodes, and sign up for our premium content through the Hidden Forces website at hiddenforces.io. Whatever religion you observe or holiday you celebrate, I wish you all a very happy one. And hopefully you won't be the only Hidden Forces listener at the table. But if you are, make sure you subscribe each and every one of your crazy family members to this show. And with that, please enjoy my appearance on the Mining Stock Daily Podcast with host Trevor Hall. Where did we go astray here with the role of media giving us information for us to make up our own mind instead of now we're getting push stories and push narratives that we they want us to know or want us to think as reality. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, and I think you'll probably agree with this, we were always being constrained and being pushed, right? In the old age of very large singular media institutions with hierarchical control, organization, and strong relationships to the government, there were there were things that just lots of things that weren't discussed. So, like, uh, what is that term? Uh, commission by omission or something? What is it? But there's always an attempt to structure reality. I think the difference now is that we live during a time where it feels like there's no dominant structure. You know, there isn't one dominant force that's constraining the narrative in a particular way beyond the platforms themselves. But the platforms don't operate, they operate with a sort of nihilistic logic driven by the algorithm, which is driven by the optimized function of make more money, create more engagement, which ultimately leads to more clicks and more money. So I think technology has played a big role in all of this, but there's actually a a book of an author whose name 
escapes me in this moment, which has been mentioned to me a few times, first by Joshua Yaffa, who had been on the podcast to talk about his book, Between Two Fires, which was a book about Putin's Russia. It was in his book that he mentioned this book, uh, Nothing is True, But Everything is Possible. I can actually tell you right now, I think I can tell you the name of the author for your audience. Um, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, The Surreal Heart of the New Russia by Peter Pomerantsev. And he wrote the book in 2014. He had, I don't know much about him, but it was mentioned to me again by a listener recently, and I'm going to have him on. I'm going to reach out and get him on and read the book. But the short story from someone who hasn't read the book, but has gotten a basic idea of what it is, the guy, the author was a, a, a worked in reality television. And he was in Russia during either the late 90s through early 2000s or just the early 2000s. And he saw Russia transform and become a country that more closely resembles now where we are today. But they were ahead of it. I think one of the things that Peter says is that a question that has since pu the publication of that book, because he published that in 2014, that has since plagued him is, why was Russia first to the future? What was it that happened in Russia that led the society down a path that we now find ourselves where it's not so much that you know in the, during the soviet era there was a, a sort of ideology that constrained or informed the messaging of propaganda but in putin's russia according to people like peter and joshua it's really this uh, again to use a term that i've used often on my own podcast there's a kind of nihilistic quality of well there's really nothing is true and nothing is discernible there's no truth. Everything is relative. Everything is power. Everything is cynical. And so you can't believe anything. Nothing has more weight or merit than anything else. And that feels very much like the world that we have increasingly slipped into. It's one of, it feels morally apathetic and yet so oftentimes characterized by internecine battles hinging on the most ridiculous moral platitudes, which again, reconfirms this idea that nothing really makes sense. Everything is, who knows, what is kosher today could be racist tomorrow. What is true today could be false tomorrow. And so I don't think it's all technology. But again, I want to read Peter's book because this is one of the, this is a really you know important question. It's not just fascinating intellectually, it's important, very important, the question that you ask. And it's one that I don't, fully know, but I, I want to try and understand. But just based on that superficial evidence, the fact that the Russians have been dealing with this long before Facebook and Twitter and Google were there to make it a reality, suggests that there's something else going on here. There's something deeper, a psychosomatic schism, a psychosocial schism in the body politic. So that's kind of where I'm at in that investigation. It's something that concerns me, but I don't have a deeper answer than that. The, the tribalism amongst society in general has just been troubling troubling to watch. because, And maybe it's just because we go through these four-year political cycles when every time we have, at least here in the United States where we have a presidential election, somebody from each side says, oh, they're going to be the great unifier that the country needs. But we haven't... <laughs> I don't know if we've had a great unifier in our lifetime, to be quite frank. Mm. At least not since I was old enough to vote. No. Who was the last great unifier? Was it Reagan? Did Reagan qualify as a unifier? Because there were lots of people that didn't like Ronald Reagan. Right. So what constitutes a unifier? Lots of people didn't like FDR, though, too. So you, you sort of wonder what constitutes a unifier. I mean, with JFK, maybe? JFK? 
No, he was no. so polarizing. People, are you kidding? That's why he was assassinated. The South hated JFK. Fair enough. The Republicans hated JFK. Anti-communists hated JFK. They saw him as a suspicious, dubious character with mafia connections. Father was a Wall Street tycoon. I think my my context with JFK really comes back from my parents. You know, you know, listening to them tell stories about when they were young, when JFK became president, and just that optimism that came in. So that's the context that I get from JFK. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I don't know, I don't know the demographic breakdown of JFK's base how many people were young, et cetera. But certainly JFK was, remember, the first World War II generation president, right? Eisenhower was, he was in World War II, but he was a general. He wasn't of that generation. He wasn't enlist. He didn't enlist in the war. And JFK was that. He was part of that generation. It was that generation's Barack Obama, right? For the Gen Xers. So certainly he was special to a lot of people. He inspired a lot of people. He was also a flawed human being, a complicated character who made a lot of decisions, forceful decisions, consequential decisions that turned out to have, in some cases, been correct, in other cases, worked out well. But he certainly was not a unifier. And though I would say his assassination probably did more to unify the country under Lyndon Johnson than anything else, but of course, that support for LBJ deteriorated within just one administration and uh, five years basically, right? So I don't know, man. It's a great question. I, I think what happens is in history, it seems to me as an amateur historian, very amateur historian, <laughs> <laughs> is that there are moments when people are amenable to coming together. They're open they're more than open. They're looking for someone to unify them. And in those moments, the right person can step in and play that role, right? Put on the costume and play the role. And the presidency is the ultimate performance. It's a costume. You wear the presidency. A mortal human being puts on the robes of the presidency and performs the acts. And is it so much, for example, that you sort of wonder, was it Bill Clinton through his affairs, George Bush through his stuttering ignominity or whatever the term is, Donald Trump through his grotesque blowhole of a mouth. <laughs> Was it all these different morally dubious presidents who sort of des- and I didn't include Barack Obama in there because while I have so many issues with Barack Obama's policies and his disappointment, he's become an incredibly disappointing president. He had decorum, so to speak. And Bush also had decorum. I mean, that was how Bush ran for president in 2008. What he kept saying, I'm going to bring decorum back to the White House. Everyone's going to wear a suit and a tie. They're going to wear more. I'm going to walk around with like Hawaiian shorts like the, the Clinton administration. But you sort of, what I'm getting at is you, you wonder whether it is these people, and I, and I brought up again, just to highlight, I brought up Clinton specifically and Trump especially, because their transgressions were very superficial. Well, I'm not discounting any deeper transgressions, but they had some superficial transgressions that impugned the cachet of the office. Something that could have happened to JFK had that all that stuff leaked out through the press. But you wonder, is it because these characters have bankrupted the office, or is it really that there are other forces responsible? And I would say there are other forces responsible. You know, Bill Clinton was very upset at the news departments for putting out into the open 
all of his personal transgressions. He felt that would have just never happened. He was correct. That would have never happened 20, 30 years ago, certainly not to his icon, JFK. So I don't know how I got on this long rant, <laughs> but- uh, I asked the question. Yeah. I don't know what the question was anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, well so let's, let's do, I want to ask you about your, your, your evolution of political thought here. This is a nice transition since we're talking, because I can't remember, I think you were interviewing Julius Crane, Crine? Crine, Crine. yeah. And you had talked about, uh, and something that you said that hit home with me, because it's like, well, that's exactly what I did, was kind of going into prior to 2001 and 9-11, you, you kind of were positioning political one way, and then it was maybe mm -hmm. put on steroids uh, through the Afghan Iraqi wars, and then transitioned from the great financial crisis into something where we are are at today. And so, you know, and I think when you said that, because I have been conflicted with me in, internally, is like, you know, I've always kind of leaned one way internally, hmm. but recently I've been like, you know, maybe I don't anymore because I've my experiences are different. I'm listening to more, reading more, being able to see the other sides. And maybe I'm not that way anymore. So just being, you know, being flexible in your political thought, I guess, and where you stand. And I don't know if flexibility is even an appropriate word or just kind of being open to seeing all angles. Can you talk about mm. the last 20 years and what you kind of your, your fluctuations from, you know, politically? Yeah, I, I didn't really have an opinion politically before the 9-11 attacks. So that was really my starting point. And I became, I wasn't explicitly a Democrat or anything, but if you were to try and pin me down or if uh, an algorithm was trying to put me into a box, they would label me as progressive Democrat, left of center, sufficiently left of the, of the left party, kind of whatever the thing is. Not a communist, but <laughs> not a centrist, a hardcore Dem, so to speak, progressive. And that was entirely informed by my stance on the war and my pacifist impulses. And then later also colored by some strong, morally persuasive arguments around equality and equality, the force of the environment upon us and how our world shapes us and how much are we really responsible for the outcomes in our lives versus the world around us. But I think part of what it means to get older is to also recognize Yes, it's important to recognize how the world has shaped us, and I, I'm the first to acknowledge all the good fortune I've had. I think also there is an acknowledgement that occurs around the extent to which you have had to overcome and had to make choices in the face of uncertainty to get to where you are, which is why maybe that age-old adage of, if you're young and you're a Republican, you don't have a heart, but if you're old and you're a liberal, you <laughs> don't have, have a head. Yeah, don't have a brain. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something like that. So- I was definitely left, left of center, and uh, it was formed, informed, like I said, primarily by my pacifist impulses, but also, you know, the most interesting stuff was counterculture, and that goes back to the consensus thinking, right? I'm a natural contrarian, insofar as I don't like, I feel icky going with the crowd and the herd. I just never, ever, ever felt comfortable, even though I used to I think maybe this is finally changing at this stage in my life, but I always cared what everyone else thought. It wasn't that I, I didn't give a shit, you know, and I was like that guy that just kind of did whatever I wanted. I did whatever I wanted, but I wanted people to like me. I wanted to be cool. I wanted 
Obviously, I wanted girls to like me. I wanted guys to respect me. But my contrarian impulses always sort of kept me apart from the crowd and, and caused me to seek out peripheral knowledge, you know, stuff that was not as well known, not as widely acknowledged, et cetera. And so those were the thinkers that I cut my teeth on early on politically, the Gore Vidals, the uh, Norman Mailers, the Nam Chomskys, the Chalmers Johnsons, the Howard Zins of this world. And so I have a lot of love when I think back at that time. Bill Moyers had a show on PBS that I love to watch. And they really informed my worldview in many ways, including my economic views, my political economic views, my views of how the mechanics, so to speak, of the economy and markets were informed by my neoclassical Samuelsonian education in school. I majored in both economics and in political science. So I had to disabuse myself of those views as I grappled with the reality of markets as a young adult before the financial crisis. But by the time the financial crisis came about, it was the second watershed in my life. You know, the 9-11 attacks were the first that disabused me of my notions of safety and security and brought me in many ways and all of us into history, right? I think that's so interesting to think of it in those terms, but the end of the Cold War, as Francis Fukuyama wrote, marked the end of history. Now, he expressed it in, in concrete physical terms. It was the end of history. It was the end of bipolarity. It was the onset of a new world order that would sustain itself through full-spectrum dominance and unequivocal submission to American hegemony. Of course, that lasted for like a decade. And so it was, it was, you know, while the early 2000s were the, early 90s were the, marked the beginning of the end of history, the early 2000s marked the beginning of the renewal, onset of history, right? We were back to dealing with some of the basic insecurities that human beings have dealt with almost their entire lives. So that's what 2001 was. And then 2008 was a version of that for markets. You know, I grew up, my awareness of markets was really Fed Chairman Greenspan and the briefcase indicator on CNBC. You know, is it bulging? Is he going to raise rates? Is he going to lower rates? What's the maestro going to do? You know, the markets dance to his tune. But 2008 made me realize that, ah, yeah. Well, I mean, I knew that, as I've talked about in other podcasts, I, I was very attuned to the credit bubble and to the credit cycle because I was plugged in to Austrian economic theory. And I was reading a lot of interesting stuff. And so when the 2008 crisis happened, I was like, well, I knew this was going to happen. I was positioned for it. Unfortunately, I wasn't positioned for Fed intervention. And so that intervention and the scale of the intervention rather, and the intervention of the fiscal authorities and the whole thing, the whole thing, it radicalized me. I was a, both a, a Barack Obama supporter and a Ron Paul supporter. And so that's where I switched. I went from being the sort of progressive person to be a sort of quasi-libertarian type. And there were issues with libertarianism that always kind of didn't feel like they applied to the world we lived in. They were nice, nice to have, wish I had them kind of thing, but I didn't feel that they could really work. And that's where I was for a long time. But then after I ended Capital Account, which was very much a, an anti-establishment counterculture type program, counterculture, financial counterculture, right? Not the 
the progressive foreign policy related. That foreign policy was the big thing, the big shtick. If you had that in the early 2000s, post-2008 became the financial whiz sort of commentator, a uh, person that could really break it down. And after I left Capital Account, after I had brain surgery and radiation, which I've talked about because I had a brain tumor, I came back into this world and I let time assimilate my feelings and my thoughts. And I eventually came out to where I am today, which is a person who is committed to seeking the truth to the best that I can, not interested in coming to the world with a set view that I then look for confirmation biases. No doubt, I come to every situation with a view, but I try and hold that view accountable and I try to consistently update it so I'm always replenishing the garden of my own ideas. You have, I think you got this tag that you've called, is it financial nihilism or economic nihilism? Yes, financial nihilism. Financial nihilism. Yes. And I want to kind of open this up here because you talked about how, you know, you weren't prepared for the Fed to bail everything out in 2008, mm -hmm. great financial crisis. Do we put too much effort or, you know, too much focus on the Fed doing the same thing if something like that were to happen after this massive everything bubble eventually does pop somewhere? You know, and I am framing this in the context that in my flight back from London, I just ended up watching The Big Short just because I was like, mm, oh. What a great film. That was a great film. That's what awesome an underrated film. film. Yeah. yeah. Um, great film. Cinematography the was amazing too. Yeah, the, it was good. Uh, the you know the beginning of the movie, they're talking about how there was all this money into this system. Everybody was spending money. You know, th they had ludicrous music. You know, the rapper Ludicrous was in the background uh, with every, you know just purveying all the the money people were making and spending. The the, the economy was doing so well until it eventually became crashing. And I keep and, I, and during that time watching in the film in the airplane, I was like, "Look, you've got Matt Damon doing crypto.com commercials. You've got Tom, uh, you've got Tom Brady doing crypto commercials at the same weekend that I guess a lot of people were canceling their reservations in big cities because their crypto accounts were getting margin called. <laughs> you know, they, yeah, talk about like, are you seeing similarities today that you saw back in 2008 leading up to the great financial crisis? Uh, so a lot of things that you said there, uh, one had to do with the Fed and bailing everyone out. Another one had to do with, I don't know if it was specific to crypto or more just the general euphoria that we see everywhere. Gen general euphoria. General euphoria. With respect to the Fed, I think this is a really interesting question because I think what you asked was like, are we too comfortable with this idea that the Fed's going to bail everybody out? You know, I've been too uncomfortable with that idea for the last 11 years. And I'm starting to wonder if the problem that I have and maybe others have is that we need a, a much more fundamental rethink of what type of economy this is and what type of political system we're living under. And we like to think of ourselves as living under a sort of corrupt capitalist system or a capitalist system with a lot of flaws that we need to fix. And I tend to think of it this way as well. And maybe it's one fair way to think of it, but maybe maybe we're closer to a socialist society than we are a capitalist one. And it depends on how you want to talk about socialism. And I, and I mean socialism in the sense of, because communism, so the Soviet economy, at least as I've learned economics as a, as a student in school, was not communist. It was socialist. It was socialist because communism is 
the community owns everything. Socialism is the state owns it all. And so it was socialist in that sense. Now, certainly the state doesn't own everything in the United States. So from that sense, we're not socialist. But when you look at the license that the Fed has taken in this economy, our economy, at least from our policy standpoint, from an economic monetary policy standpoint, is I would argue, if we had to pick between socialism and capitalism, I would say, oh, we're socialist all the way. You know, our monetary policy is very socialist. Financial markets are no longer a place where investors come to make decisions and and make up or down votes of confidence about this or that company and for entrepreneur for business operators and owners to find capital to invest in new projects etc cetera, etc cetera. it is in some ways a speculative casino but it always has been but more fundamentally it's a political utility the us government owns the stock market and i mean this and it's a provocative statement but let me try to make the point here if i can the us government owns the stock market in the same way that the us government owned iraq after the invasion. To quote Colin Powell, we broke it, we own it. And the US government has broken the stock market. The US government has broken markets in some fundamental ways. And it's hard to even think about markets as having any kind of independence anymore. You know, of course, markets are always shaped by policy decisions. That's always been true. You know, no, there's no such thing as a free market in the sort of purest sense of the word. But there are qualitatively meaningful distinctions between free and fair markets and sort of corrupt, socialist, captured markets. And those that's what we live in today. We live in a in a world with socialist, captured, corrupt markets and markets that cannot go down. And when I say cannot go down, I don't mean that physically they cannot drop but that the policymakers are absolutely committed to preventing them from dropping because they are no longer a place where people make returns above the benchmark. They are now the benchmark. They are where people seek to save. It's where people have their retirement accounts. It's where companies have their pension funds. It's where public entities, firefighters, police departments, school teachers, unions, et cetera, have their retirement funds. So the, that's a long-winded way of saying that Actually, Trevor, if I had to guess, I'd say that we, some of us perhaps don't appreciate enough the commitment of the Fed and the government to, as, as David Portnoy would say, ensure that stonks only go up. So that's the first question. And we can talk about that more if you want, or I can switch to your Matt Damon observation. Uh, be, be, I, I want to continue to kind of ask one last question before we we move on to the crypto discussion and more of this financial nihilism. But there's this old adage, and I wrote this down. You remember they say the market is not the economy, but I don't know, Dimitri. It seems like we couldn't be any further from the truth right now, where the stock market maybe isn't the economy, but is really tied to the economy right now because so goes the market. I really believe so goes the general economy? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know about that, about so goes the market, so goes the economy. I do, though, agree with where I thought you were going with it, which is that we live in a, in a, a more extractive economy today, and people's focus is on the market. And policy, it seems, 
increasingly caters to what's better for financial assets and valuations and not actually the economy and wages and outcomes in the real world and reinvestment in the things that we need. So that's where I would fall. I don't know what would happen if markets collapsed by 80%. And the problem also is because people's expectation is that the Fed's going to intervene in every case. And if the Fed doesn't intervene, that raises all sorts of other questions about what's going on. People maybe just freak out because they're so dependent in their mindset. But just fundamentally speaking, I don't know what the consequences would be of a collapse in the stock market if people would just be okay with just not read into it too much. I don't know what effect it would have long-term on the economy because values are so out of whack. You know what I'm saying? Like my apartment in the city that I own costs a fortune relative to the amount of money that I could generate if I rented it. You know, so if its value collapses by 50%, but the rents for it might not might even go up because now more people are going to be renting. So what does it really matter? I don't know. You know, it's really the question that it has to do with credit and obligations and sorting all out all the bullshit that has gotten confused in this sort of multi-decade credit expansion. So that would be the bigger concern, I think, in terms of how it would impact the economy. What are your thoughts? Where are we at here on the credit cycle? I mean, we go back, we saw big credit bust in 2000s, you know, we definitely saw it in like 97 from the East Asia crisis. We saw a big credit bust leading up to the great financial crisis, 2007, 2008. I, where are we at now with credit? You know, you'd have to interview someone that probably, I can only imagine we're in a worse place, <laughs> but this is one of those places where it really pays to have a quantitative brain and some data sleuths on your team really spending a lot of time understanding, not just obviously the much easier information to get, which is certain broad credit aggregates, but what are all the knock-on effects of that? But I mean, certainly we live in a world fueled by credit. We can see that. We can see it in all sorts of ways. One way we can see it is, for example, you and I were talking before we got on the air about technology and Tesla came up and I made the observation that, well, Tesla's valuation is not based on fundamentals. It's not based on prospective cash flow. It's based on not just euphoria. It's based on the capacity to resource capital that comes from outside of one's endogenous capacity to create it through profits and sales and cost control. So that's one way in which we see it. And so I don't know. I don't know, Trevor, but I, I can only imagine it's much worse. How okay? So let's let's talk about this crypto. And I mentioned the Matt Damon and Tom Brady commercials for crypto brokerage firms. Now, um, so us metals people, physical metal, gold, silver, you know, we always have a case that you can't substitute the hard metal for something that was based on an on a, a, a code, a computer code, right? This is created out of nothing. A lot of Crypto investors will say, well, Bitcoin's a hedge against inflation. It's much better than gold. Well, something like Bitcoin only has 12 years of history, where gold has 5,000 years of history. Where, what are your thoughts on this exuberant euphoria in cryptocurrencies compared to where we are in this cycle. Well, so I, I guess just to clarify, do you want to take the first part first, which is uh, this comparison of gold and crypto and code to 
God, so to speak. <laughs> let's let's do that. Nature. Let's do that. It might be fresh on your mind after your Jim Grant interview. Yeah, there's something to it. I mean, gold is an elemental, physical thing that we cannot manufacture. It is manufactured for us. So I think that's the fundamental distinction between gold and something like crypto, which is instantiated as a result of a process of uh, conscious information processing. It's something that, yes, granted the game theory behind Bitcoin's limited supply is powerful. It can be changed just with a single keystroke. So it is just code in that sense. But I do think that that distinction does, it does miss a great deal. And I think actually that's the least of the, I think, arguments that gold has on its favor, in its favor for that debate. I actually don't think that's a powerful one. We could talk about that even more, but that's my top view on that. In terms of, at least for Bitcoin, I think it's a powerful distinction. And not just Bitcoin, sorry, for, for everything, but let's just take Bitcoin because it's the more apt comparison between gold and crypto because of the proof of work function. And you know, Bitcoin advocates will say that Bitcoin is better than gold because it has a limited supply just like gold. It's constrained by the hash functions and by mining, the need to actually conduct physical work in order to emit 10 Bitcoins or whatever the number is now. But the key distinction though there is that there's no such thing as a single Bitcoin. There's only such thing as a single Bitcoin within the construction of the Bitcoin network. A single Bitcoin does not exist outside of the network. And so when you're buying Bitcoin, you're buying space on a ledger. When you're buying gold, physical gold, you're buying physical gold. You're not buying it, it's not attached to anything. And so you're, it's, it has value completely independently. It doesn't have value independently of the capital that exists in the economy, the opportunities, the inflation, people's perceptions, but it physically exists independently. This is not true for Bitcoin. And it's a very key distinction because the Bitcoin network consistently needs energy in order to exist. And it's another way of also saying that Bitcoin is a liability of the Bitcoin network, whereas gold truly is no one's liability. And that's a key distinction. And I think it's an important one. And also, you mentioned narrative duration. That's key. I mean, Bitcoin has never experienced one single credit market cycle. There have been individual Bitcoin cycles, and there are cycles in the resource sectors, travel sectors, et cetera, but it has not experienced one single business cycle in the real economy. So until we get another 2008 or something analogous, we all have to just be a bit humble about how it performs in that period, because we don't know. And the fact that gold has been around for thousands of years means something. It means a lot. Now, what does it mean? I don't know. But also, you know, Bitcoin's appearance in the world, its manifestation, has challenged, I think, gold bugs' misconceptions about the fundamental value of gold and where its value really resides. And so in that way, it's knocked some of the polish off of gold, I think. And it's maybe caused people to rethink the barbarous relic, so to speak, maybe make themselves more open to some of the arguments of someone like Warren Buffett. How you personally invest in this space, if at all? I've been a longtime investor. I haven't really added uh, any kind of meaningful amount to my allocation, but I've been a precious metals buyer and holder since the very early 2000s. And the last time I added to my allocation was in 2013. And I have only 
at this point, physical exposure. And for me, I see precious metals as just an, a necessary part of any properly long-term hedged portfolio. You know, I'm not some big options whiz. I don't know how to use derivatives to more efficiently offset risk in my portfolio. To the extent that I use derivatives, they're just kind of bets, but they're not part of this really brilliantly mathematically orchestrated risk-weighted portfolio. So for me, gold is a way of taking a certain type of risk off the table, the risk of catastrophic loss. How has, uh, oh, let's just say 2020, 2021, the, the years of COVID, how has it changed your investment thesis or has it changed at all? Or maybe it's been a little too scary to think about. That's an interesting question. How has it changed my investment thesis? It's made me more risk-loving. I've taken, it's made me less risk-averse. I've leaned into opportunities. But again, well, this is where I envy people. I think people who are very good risk managers are particularly well-positioned for the world we live in today. Understanding flows and understanding how to really calculate risk is more important today, I think, than any point in my lifetime. Less important today is the ability to read a balance sheet. So it's made me take more risks in certain areas because I have, a, I guess, um, a different appreciation of the upside potential than I used to, which is, by the way, this, is, this coincided with the same period where I, I, I developed this thesis of financial nihilism. You know, it was actually before COVID, I started to really get this into my head. But I've embraced the opportunities to take big bets in crypto, as well as not so much in equities, in crypto primarily. Because crypto really is, the, if you're going to chase major upside return, that's the space to do it. And the inefficiencies in crypto are so enormous that you really can do well. And you can do well with a very small amount of money while you're also using the rest of your portfolio to be safe. And in that way, that's kind of how I, you know, for lack of a better term, risk adjust my portfolio so that I have exposure to um, craziness, so to speak, uh, while at the same time never worrying that I'm going to become poor, that I'm going to, you know, experience catastrophic loss. So fundamental investing with a healthy, but you know, less risky case of speculation on the side. Yes, I invest in real estate again, precious metals, cash, and I have a small percentage, a very small percentage of my portfolio, which has now become a very, very large percentage of my portfolio. But again, with very little amount of capital allocated towards it, in these very risky bets and. That's how I've managed to kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, navigate the waters, these very, very treacherous waters that we live in today. Because it matters to me, I want to participate. I got tired after a certain point of waiting for the collapse, so to speak, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just- Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was exhausting. And I realized <laughs> that, you know, like at what point do I have to question my fundamental analysis, the way that I view the world and this idea of- a reversion, because we have mean reversion in markets, but it's reversion to the mean of market go up, number go up, right? But at what point do I revise this view that I have in my head that, well, the bubble will revert back to reality? It's sort of, I had, again, I would invest with this very Popper and Popperian, you know, Karl Popper, George Soros's mentor, view of the world that markets and the economy have a reflexive relationship and that the two get out of whack. And, and so I got tired of 
just waiting for everything to revert back to some you know steady state equilibrium of what of that more properly reflected reality. And I questioned why I had those models in my head. That brings us back to the earlier observation about the Fed and socialism and markets being a political utility and the need to constantly check yourself. So that doesn't mean that I'm encouraging anyone to go out and speculate in crypto. It just means that, and in fact, I don't, you know, like I said, I, I, I make a lot of safe decisions because I don't want to experience catastrophic loss, but I want to participate. So you wouldn't classify yourself as a hodler? No, I wouldn't. And that's a interesting like observation because I don't know what it, the official definition of a hodler is, but in my experience, a hodler is someone who just won't sell. You know, he or she won't sell. And whether the, he or she knows this or not, a big part of that reason is because they are emotionally invested in their identity as a hodler. It's a great, mar- it's a great marketing ploy, Dimitri. It's the best marketing I've ever seen. Yeah. And that makes you also right. And recognizing that may has to make you aware of the fact that this market has benefited. It has gone up much more than any other market would have because it has this unique breed of hodler, this unique mindset of people who consistently buy and don't sell. Incidentally, we have the same thing in equity markets, but we have it through institutional passive. So there is a lot supporting these markets, whether it's, again, equities with institutional passive and people's conception of mean reversion and the need the need for a certain return and the use of credit instruments and derivatives in order to achieve that synthetically in equities and what that does to the price of equities and in crypto. And so there's a lot of artificial support and that creates a lot of unease because you spoke early on about, maybe you didn't say it when we started the podcast, but this sort of general existential or societal angst that exists. And that anxiety exists in markets. There is that sort of black swan out there lurking. And what's scary is that as the years pass by, I am less concerned about it, even though I know it's still there. You know, And I'm concerned about what that means that uh, more and more people might feel that way. You know, I, I wrote the word here, fragility. I mean, obviously there is fragility in markets right now. But kind of tying it all together, because we spent a lot of time talking about society in general. Yeah. Do you feel like that same fragility is transferring, transcending itself from markets to society in general? Um, hmm. And this is the stuff, you, you are to blame for this question, because this is the stuff I think about <laughs> when I listen to you. Oh, man. <laughs> God, that's a difficult question. It seems on the surface to be a simple question based on the kind of stuff I talk about, but I know I've said that society's fragile, and I mean that in certain ways, but I guess fundamentally, I actually would like to think that we're more resilient than we think, but what I would say is maybe I would restate it by saying that there are a lot of air pockets in our society, just like in markets. There are a lot of air pockets, and we've constructed a world that is fragile put it that way. It's not so much that society is fragile, that the world we have constructed is fragile, whether it's supply chains, whether it is our political system, and not the institutions themselves, like the constitution, but the forced bipolarity of our politics. You know, the fact that we've had for years, these two parties just trading the baton back and forth and playing this game, this political theater, which has allowed really certain interests to capture the government and control it. And now what we end up seeing with the election of Donald Trump 
is a break in that, right? That air pocket blew out and the Republicans lost control of their primary. And so I think those types of things in the geopolitical realm as well, we see this, you know, the Russians now have a massive like 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine. The Indian, the top military official in India, along with his wife, maybe his kids and some other officials, don't quote me on the kids, don't quote me on any of this, but I, I certainly the top official, et cetera, died in a helicopter crash. A few years ago, something similar happened in Taiwan to their top military leader. So I don't know if that was an accident, if that is part of, again, these machinations that, that happened in the geopolitical realm that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago because of the absence of American power and, and its capacity to check ambitious powers, rising powers. So we have a certain set of assumptions about our expectations, about the markets, about politics, et cetera. And we've been conditioned to live in this world with very little volatility, but right under the surface are a lot of gaps, a lot of air pockets. And I do feel that, that it's only a matter of time. And then how we react in those circumstances is really the big question. Unfortunately, one thing that I can tell you, I can feel pretty confident about is that people will always want it to go away. Whatever it is, if some big, strong daddy man comes out and says, hey, don't worry, I promise I'll fix it. Don't worry, your 401k will be fine. We'll bail you out. Don't worry. You're not going to die in some crazy you know, explosion on the subway. We're going to go take a bunch of these people threatening you, we're going to put them into concentration camps, you'll be fine. People always prefer the story to the hard work of actually investigating lived reality. Uh, Dimitri, I, I probably could spend the next, well, the rest of the morning chatting, but uh, I know your time is precious. I, I, I do want to say, before I let you go, I do want to say thank you so much for doing what you do because you have, the interviews and the conversations you have had on your podcast have really shaped the way I approach the world and markets and just kind of what I'm reading and wanting to study and question myself. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, for people listening, where can they find you and where can they find Hidden Forces and tell them about maybe subscribing to the podcast? Sure. The easiest way to review our, our library of content is at hiddenforces.io. And we don't take any sponsors. The second hour is part of the paid subscription model that we employ, where you can also get transcripts of the show and rundowns, which are my notes. You can subscribe to the paid tier at hiddenforces.io slash subscribe or directly through Patreon at patreon.com slash hiddenforces. We're going to be moving our subscription model to a new platform called Supercast which I'm very excited about. And we're going to launch a new website and everything else. And it's going to be, there's going to be some added benefits to that, which I'm excited to do. But for now, that's how you can subscribe. And you can find the podcast anywhere on any platform, Spotify, Google Play, Apple. And if you're ever traveling on any airlines, we're on many international airlines like United, British, Singapore, Cathay. I just found out that we're on Aer Lingus, the uh, Irish airline. We're on a number of airlines that I believe we're on Lufthansa also. So a bunch of airlines that I don't even know about. So that's you can listen to us all over the place. That's awesome. Uh, and 30,000 feet in the air. <laughs> I mean, and, and like I said, mentioned, you had Jim Grant on, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. I listened to that on the airline. Something like that. Uh, you also had Andrew Yang on earlier this fall, which I thought was a spectacular interview. Like, yeah, that was a really fascinating. I mean, so you get people from all over the place. Each mm -hmm. week is something different. I'll say like 
there's been times where like I've listened to, I've like had it in my ears while I'm like mountain biking or something. I literally have to like stop off the trail and be like, all right, we <laughs> really, really tune in and re-listen to it. That's great. That's my object. My objective is to cut into your exercise, Trevor. <laughs> yeah, no. It's the last had, thing I we've need. Had Eric Schmidt. We've had Scott Godley, the former FDA commissioner. We've had Ash Carter, the former secretary of defense. We've had Bob Carey, one of the 11 9-11 commissioners on the panel that investigated the 9-11 attacks. So we've had a lot of great podcasts, a lot of great shows, and it's no exaggeration to say that it is an honor to host this podcast and have a chance to learn from people whose work has influenced me, people much smarter than me, people who have dedicated their lives to particular subjects. I'm very fortunate, and I love hearing from fans and everyone else who listens who express how much they love the show because it is, while I do host it, it's for all of us to enjoy. I wouldn't enjoy it the same way if I was alone. Uh, Dimitri, thanks again for your time. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas holiday season and a wonderful new year. You too, Trevor. Thank you very much. For more information about this week's episode, or if you want easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you want access to overtime segments, episode transcripts, and show rundowns full of links and detailed information related to each and every episode, check out our premium subscription available through the Hidden Forces website or through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hiddenforces. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stylianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. Join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hiddenforcespod, or send me an email at dk at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.